I, I would say there, I mean, there are multiple there are multiple findings that are interesting things to talk about. I mean, I'm, I always say that the most interesting finding is that despite this being, a, like I say, an ostensibly healthy population with no clinical issues, doing increasing levels of exercise does iteratively optimize blood biomarkers to a degree that's detectable in, in this population. That, that would be, the, for me, the, the main finding. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver, and I'm joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're optimized by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Bartek Nogel, who will discuss genetics and Inside Tracker's new DNA report. Bartek holds a master's and bachelor's degree in biological engineering from Cornell University. Following the completion of his master's, Bartek worked in the biotech industry for nine years, contributing as a process development engineer. He pursued a PhD in the structural and computational biology program at Scripps Research. During his doctoral studies, Bartek employed a biophysical approach to utilizing cryoelectron microscopy to understand the mysteries of neutralizing antibody responses to HIV vaccine immunogens. His research resulted in numerous peer-reviewed publications, including contributions to the journal Cell. Furthermore, his doctoral thesis work received recognition and made the cover of the 2020 March issue of Cell Reports. Bartek joined Inside Tracker's team as a scientist five years ago and worked in many different positions within the science team. In the last several years, he's led the genetics and genomics team. Welcome, Bartek. Hi, guys. Hey. Thanks and, for having uh, me Bartek, again. It's yeah, exactly. But it's a, a pleasure having you again. And even so that we asked you those questions uh, before, we'd like to start by uh, a couple of uh, introductory questions. The first one is, uh, what led you to become a scientist? Yeah, so let, let's see if I lied last time, if I come up with the same answer. <laughs> um, so basically, when I was a kid, I, I was uh, in love with animals. I surrounded myself with all kinds of pets and hamsters, guinea pigs, fish, et cetera. Uh, and I was just interested in how life worked. And I was on track to become a vet. And that's sort of why I joined Cornell University. But very quickly there, when I got exposed to some of the molecular side of biology, I become interested in that more so than veterinary medicine. And I transitioned into more biomolecular engineering side of things. And yeah, just interest, general interest in life and nature and how things work, how things click. And we said you've been with Inside Tracker. For, is it really just five years? I feel like it's so much longer than that. Uh, full time, it's been five years. But yeah, when I was when I was doing my PhD at Scripps, I was consulting as a genomics yeah. consultant. So so it's yeah, it's more since 2015. So more like yeah, eight, eight nine years Amazing. in different capacities. And what? Yeah, what's your primary role now on a, on the genetics genomics team? 
Uh, so I lead, I lead the genomics team primarily, but also I help out with different types of scientific collaborations within the company. Cool. And uh, that might be a good transition for the first uh, part of uh, this interview. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we published, and uh, you are the first author of this uh, publication, a paper about uh, uh, running. And uh, maybe uh, can you start by uh, providing our users or our listeners some uh, background about uh, the paper? Yeah, sure. So I should first say that while I am the first author on the paper, the first authorship is shared equally with another colleague who is no longer with Inside Tracker, but she did most of the biomarker analysis. And I helped out with some of the Mendelian randomization genomics analyses and, and writing the paper. The, the idea behind that paper was that we were sitting on a lot of user data, one of them being self-reported exercise habits, in this case running. Uh, and since we also have corresponding blood data with those types of data, we, we were doing this type of analysis for our own uh, knowledge. And it turned out that there were some interesting findings in the form of some dose-response relationships between how much running people reported and what the shifts were in their, especially inflammatory biomarkers and lipids. So can you uh, elaborate about the size of the study? How many subjects have you been? Yeah, the, the, it, was it was quite large for this type of study in kind of a free living, free living population with blood biomarker data. I think it was on the order of uh, over 20,000 people total. So quite, it's a quite huge large. Study. So we were, yeah. And as a, with the significant thing, one of the significant findings that I, I see is despite our user base, um, our customers are generally relatively healthy people. And so a lot of their starting blood biomarker values were already in the normal clinical reference ranges. Uh, they may not have been all in what Inside Tracker has as the demographic based optimal ranges. But they were in the clinical kind of normal reference ranges. And so the fact that we were able to observe effect sizes with running in this relatively healthy population was, was significant. And it kind of spoke to how powerful a lever exercise can be, even in people who may not be as responsive relative to somebody who might have, have type 2 diabetes or be obese and have biomarkers that are way out of whack. And you're more likely to get a large effect size from you know, even a 50-minute minute walk every day. Or so. And in the study, you ran a PCA analysis. Can you explain what that is and then maybe elaborate a little further on what you found using that specific approach? Yeah, when Setlana ran this, it was for, it was an initial read on what is driving the differences in our in the different cohorts. So we had a cohort of people who were more, at, more uh, sort of professional runners or more, say, amateur professionals and those who are sedentary and wanted to see what on a, on a high level, what separates them. And it's hard to tell when you have 30 some different biomarkers and there's just too many dimensions to see the high level. So principal component analysis is a form of dimensional reduction technique that allows you to get an initial read on what's driving the difference between exercises and non-exercises. And in this case, we, it was largely a null finding, but we did see some qualitative results with a lot of the hematology variables like you know, hemoglobin and maybe some inflammation markers as well that were separating them. 
uh, using PCA. Cool. And uh, then uh, you and uh, Svetlana follow up with that and uh, basically uh, looked at the effect of uh, running on uh, blood biomarkers. And uh, I'm sure that you elaborate about that. My question is, was it a dose-related effect? or And was it uh, the effect of running for all markers? Or have you seen some markers that haven't been uh, responding to uh, running uh, those? So as usually happens in science and biology, it was a mixed, mixed bag of things. So I think you know, some of the lipid biomarkers definitely responded in a dose-response effect. Some, some only separated sedentary individuals from generally runners. So basically we had five, I think five groups. We had people who were sedentary. I'd have to look at the, the paper again. People who were sedentary, people who ran less than five hours, then more than 10 hours, et cetera. It was just different categories of levels of self-reported running. Um, and blood biomarkers like LDL and triglycerides, for example, or HDL, they were more dose responsive to level of running versus a biomarker like maybe HSCRP, which really just separated sedentary people from generally runners. And did we see a positive response on inflammation? Was it higher or yeah. lower? Or I guess, should, was it lower yes. for runners? Yes, it was lower for exercisers, yeah. How about any um, effect of running on BMI that we found uh, or you found in the analysis? Yeah, so the analysis was adjusted for, for BMI. So all, those, all the biomarker trends were with that incorporated into the analysis. So the effect sizes that, that are shown in some of the figures with the ANOVA analysis do include accounting for that. Um, with, with that said, there was actually, there was a, a large decreasing trend in the level of supporting self-reported running and BMI, meaning those who ran the most had the lowest BMI. And in epidemiological literature, BMI is a strong driver behind optimizing metabolic blood biomarkers. And we wanted to additional, do an additional analyses to, to help disentangle the potential effects of BMI and blood biomarkers. And for that, we used the so-called Mendelian randomization, which uses kind of naturally assigned genetics to see which of the biomarkers may have had a big BMI component in terms of how they're affected by exercise in the form of self-reported running versus BMI. Can you, uh, you raise the point or the term Mendelian randomization? I know to, for someone that uh, dealing with that all the day, it's uh, pretty easy to understand, but uh, I assume that uh, some of our listeners, it's the first time that they are hearing it. Can you define what is uh, Mendelian randomization? Yeah, so it, Mendelian randomization is, is a way of running a um, sort of a simulated, say, clinical trial using genomics data. So when, when we are born, we are randomly assigned certain genes. And some of these genes, let's, let's take BMI as an example, some of these genes predispose people to a lifetime of higher BMI. And we can use that data in a large enough population and other data sets that are, for example, predisposed people to certain levels, HSCRP, LDL, et cetera. And we combine those two data sets to see how BMI might be driving blood biomarker levels. And we can also do that with exercise levels. So 
believe it or not, we are born with some propensity to exercise more or less. We can use then a data set for level of exercise propensity for someone and then see how much that contributes to blood biomarker uh, modulation. So yeah, it's essentially nature's own randomized controlled trial that speaks to the ability of genes to prevent or to have predisposition to certain traits like blood biomarker, any, any modifiable exposure that you can think so of. So Bartek, in a way, it's a way to take a observational study like what we had and try yeah. to, to make it as causal as possible. That's fair to say. Yeah, uh, we actually specifically use Mendelian randomization to help, yeah, disentangle the confounding effects that plague observational studies. And we also used it in a somewhat of a novel way where we did look at exposure to different levels of exercise and do they, do they also predis predispose people to have, make certain dietary choices. And we did find that those who exercise more so, so those people who exercise those people, those users who reported more self-reported running, they, we found that they are also more likely to make better dietary choices, like eat less processed foods, et cetera. And it's driven through particular genes that we reported on in the paper that are also responsible for some, I think for some particular neuronal pathways that drives impulse control in terms of food seeking, et cetera. Interesting. Interesting. So I'm still in the I'm still in the Mendelian randomization, and uh, I think that it's a, a very important uh, point for our listener to to understand that now there is a very powerful uh, tool called Mendelian randomization that allows scientists to take uh, observational studies such as uh, what InstaTracker have data that from a lot of people, but we haven't uh, a plan or designed an experiment and use the genetics material as a way for us to uh, do or run an experiment after we have the data and try to see whether there is a causality or not. So it's a, an amazing tool. Uh, it's pretty new. I don't remember exactly when it was introduced first time, but it's a few years, correct? No, actually, it's, it's been around for a while. It's just that the, data, the genomic data sets have, the databases have gotten so large that we're able to do two sample Mendelian randomization where we actually don't need a cohort. We're able to just to use independent data sets that are freely available. Um, and so I should also say the real power of Mendelian randomization is also uh, because a lot of some observational trials are just not feasible. Like for example, you wouldn't want to test the effect of smoking on birth, on pregnant women and birth defects. You wouldn't do that experiment, but you can do that in, in a Mendelian randomization where you find women, uh, a cohort of women who are pregnant, they have more propensity to smoke and you just, you just do it in silico and see what the outcomes are. And you do it in a completely ethical way because you're not, you know, you're not obviously subjecting women aside from what they're naturally predisposed to. That's an interesting uh, way to... Do, to produce an unethical experiment without doing it in an unethical way, which is cool. Yeah, very good point. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. 
At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring, to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. Bartek, did you mentioned that some people do have a natural propensity to exercise more. Did that connect with self-reported running activity? Like individuals that had, I don't know if we looked at that, but just um, yeah no so the mendelian randomizations that we ran were in very large independent data sets we were not using our own data for that those were just and we in- intentionally use an independent data sets to see if we could corroborate what we saw in our observational study gotcha that and would be a so good that- thing to put in your action plan like you have a high propensity to exercise and you're not doing it what's going on <laughs> yeah 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 can you uh, uh, summarize the conclusion of uh, the, this paper that was published a couple of months ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there, I mean, there, are multiple, there are multiple findings that are interesting things to talk about. I mean, I'm, I always say that the most interesting finding is that despite this being, a, like I say, an ostensibly healthy population with no clinical issues, doing or increasing levels of exercise does iteratively optimize blood biomarkers to a degree that's detectable in, in this population. That, that would be, the, for me, the, the main finding. Meaning that even someone that is uh, pretty in a pretty good shape, running can make him even better. That's, that's a fair uh, assessment? I would say exercise. I, yes, this was a self-reported running. This was running, but we have to be careful how we talk about that because it was self-reported. We know there was definitely exercise happening because uh, inside tracker having, again, the connection to blood biomarkers, we saw biomarkers of muscle damage. Those, those two that we looked at were AST, which is a liver slash muscle damage uh, enzyme, and also creatine kinase. Those were actually elevated in a dose response way across increasing levels of self-reported running. So I don't see why our users would have any reason to self-report running if they're not running, but we obviously instead of self-reporting, I think I'd be, I'd be cautious to say either qualify, always say self-reported running or say just exercise strenuous, like vigorous exercise would be uh, what I would kind of more comfortably say. Seems fair. And I think that's a good segue into the new DNA report since you said these new scores might be coming this new report for Inside Tracker that you and your team developed, which is health span related DNA report. My understanding is you're the driving force behind this. So what drove you to really try and develop this newer report or change the current DNA report? Yeah. So it's, it's really an enhancement of what's already in the app. So currently I think it was uh, late last year that we rolled out two new 10, nine to 10 new health spans where women, women got 10, uh, males got nine, um, and they were uh, furnished in the app for people in a similar way that previous sports were, where people get their 
uh, predisposition to either having a particular genetic potential for, say, increased grip strength or risk of higher or lower ApoB. Um, and they received, as before, reduced average versus elevated categorization. But we, we felt that based on uh, questions people were asking, we felt like people were looking for a little bit more granular insights. And since we do have, when we generate these scores, we do generate a distribution of scores across all of our users, and we can give people an exact place, point, placement within the inside tracker population in terms of how they score in their genetic predisposition, we decided to put together a PDF uh, for initially for these 10 new scores. That's sort of the background. And what kind of information uh, uh, this report had that uh, the user cannot see in, uh, in the app and uh, what is the value of that? They can see exactly. So when, so all the scores, what you don't see in the app is the scores are actually normalized from zero to 100. Zero being either the lowest risk or potential or 100 being the highest risk or potential. And so what people don't see in, in the app are, are exactly what their score is. What this opens to that for them is that very thing in terms of where they placed. So for example, if a user was in the app scored average, but they were just on, on the threshold, just on the cusp of becoming high risk, they didn't know that. And so now when they see exactly where they place, they see on a continuous distribution where, where they place. And we actually, because of that, we did some statistical analysis and we actually added additional so-called borderline risk uh, for people who place in a, per, in a percentile that is approaching high risk. So people in those types of when they score there, they didn't have insight into that. Now they know that, yeah, they should probably start paying attention to that high ApoB risk and may help explain why it is so hard for them to modify, even though in the app, it looks like they have average. And so the reason we, we keep it simple in the app was to, for visual reasons and, and to just on a high level to give people just a, a quick summary, because that's what customers wanted. But now this PDF, they can actually get a more detailed view or granular view of what's behind that say average or other categorization and to dive into the, into that in the app i'll try to create uh, to describe it and correct me if i'm wrong we are showing the top 10 percent, the bottom 10 percent, and the middle 80 percent. that's correct yes that's what yeah and, so in the app yeah, yeah exactly in the yeah, app and if you score low you're yeah in a 10 percent tail at the lower end you, if you're average, you're between 10% and 90%. And if you're high, you're from 90 to 100. And in the report right now, it's basically we're showing you the percentiles from 0 to 100, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So, so, yeah, so basically, in a way, we opened the black box uh, uh, between the 10% and 90% and we're showing you exactly, even if you are a, a, a what we call the average risk, you might be in the 11 percentile. Uh, for something which is very close to a high risk, but uh, because of the definition, we showed you that you are average risk, correct? Yes. When you use 11% that, and you're saying risk, that's probably would be on the lower risk side or, or if it's 11%. Yeah, let's for say potential. potential. Yeah, let's yeah say potential. potential. Yeah. 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 And those percentiles are, is it compared to the general U.S. population or is it just inside tracker users? Um, 
that would it's, kind of place you along that it's, spectrum. It, yeah, it's it's inside tracker users, but when we compare it to the general population, any kind of data set, it inside tracker populations is generally representative of because it's just genetics, right? So we match it to ethnicity and ancestry. So when we look at an ancestry, say African ancestry from the so-called thousand genomes population that has the most data, and we compare it to our African ancestry individuals, the, the distribution overlaps pretty tight. And then, so, can, yeah. you, can you provide, uh, we discuss potential and risk, can you explain what is that and provide uh, an example for each? Yeah, so for risk scores, those are the scores where if you score higher on that score, meaning closer to 100, that's a bad thing, right? So that's when you have a more, more challenging time to help optimize uh, that particular trait. So for example, let's use epigenetic age acceleration. So I don't use ApoB all the time. Uh, when you have a risk of increased epigenetic age acceleration, which is a way of one measure of biological age, which uh, you can do, that's a bad thing if you score, say, between 80 and 100. Uh, it, it could be a bad thing, right? It's just a predisposition. It's not deterministic, right? Um, a potential score is where if you score higher on that score, like, for example, say, grip strength or the potential for being more of a morning person, the higher you score, the better. So you have an advantage potentially there. And for grip strength, as an example, Gil, do you want to talk about this one? This one's super interesting. I didn't know that we had a genetic potential for grip strength until I learned that we were adding these new scores a while ago. It's, it's kind of wild. Yeah, I can, I can talk about it. I, I have, uh, following the report, I have freaked out because my uh, <laughs> potential for grip strength is uh, 2%. Basically, I'm in the, almost the bottom of the bottom. And the, uh, the question that I want to ask Bartek, I know the answer, but I want to hear the answer from you, Bartek, is am I doomed or can I do something about that? Yeah, so actually all of these scores, aside from maybe, you know, ApoB that tends to be more heritable, all these scores are complex traits that are, they're, they're readily modifiable by life, lifestyle interventions. But if you score, say, in the very low percentiles for, like you say, grip strength, it probably means you're going to have to work a little bit harder with your resistance training because grip strength is, it's an, the, the reason we use grip strength is because that, that is a proxy for overall muscle strength. So uh, when you run population studies to discover what gen genetic variants associate with muscle strength, you're not going to get a million people on their squat rack and have them squat their maximal weight. Because um, it's all kinds of backgrounds, ages, and technique involved, whatever. But anybody can take a dynamometer, dynamometer, and s squeeze it. And so that just it's a it's a pretty good, well validated proxy for overall muscle strength. So it, it, that's essentially it's called grip strength, but it's really it means if you score low there, if you're not already working hard with your resistance training, it probably means that you probably need to get going on that. And and it doesn't does not mean you should work go. Uh, squeeze the grippers and stuff like that. It just means you should work on your overall muscle strength, even though working on grip strength is not a bad idea, but you, you do that anyway if you lift the barbell or do deadlifts or pull-ups and stuff like that. Yeah, and I want to say that uh, following the result, I started to go to the gym and uh, lift weight five times a week. 
and I'm starting to see an improvement in my grip strength. So this is a very nice uh, result that came from the DNA. And a lot of people will say, hey, DNA is not changing, so who cares? But that's giving you a lot of information. My example of the grip strength is a great example. So thank you so much for developing it, uh, Bartek. Yeah, and so the interesting thing with grips that we have another score that that's um, muscle weakness in old age, and that's that's actually distinct genetics from from continuous grip strength, which which this grip strength score was derived. So different genes appear to be expressed past sixty five that could, that could predispose you to weaker muscles, uh, and so if you're not so bad there, then you know that's another level of insight to to maybe put your mind a little bit at ease that it's not all that bad, which I, I assume there, there's some overlap in the variance. So you probably didn't score high on that either, but it, it could be a little bit different. Yeah. Makes sense. And what per, you know, genetics, obviously we can't change, but just because you have one of these slightly elevated risks or potential, what percentage of that is kind of completely out of your control, like, or I guess the flip side of what percentage of that could be changed by, you know, lifting heavy weights or doing more pull-ups or trying to change your diet a bit? What's kind of the, like, largest percentage or highest coverage, so to speak? That's, that's impossible to answer, but like, uh, broadly speaking, something like grip strength, muscle strength is highly modifiable and something like APOB is less so. We can speak about heritability. Some of these things like grip strength may be like 20 to 40% heritable, heritable and APOB is like 60 plus percent heritable. So that gives you kind of a general idea, but mm-hmm. the, the heritability estimates uh, are not always great unless we have a twin-based study because the, the genomics technology doesn't necessarily detect the really rare variants that have really large effect sizes. So when we get heritability estimates and it's not from a twin based study, they tend to be on the low side. So in general, for complex traits, you could say 50-50, but then special cases like muscle strength, we know from common knowledge that, you know, lifting heavy stuff will get you stronger. So um, that, but something like maybe, you know, something like say cognitive decline, where say you score a little bit higher on the cognitive decline, you can intervene by doing all the things that, that we kind of recommend for keeping your mind healthy. But that probably still means that because of your underlying genetics, it probably means that given the same effort for somebody who has a lower or a spe- especially low risk for cognitive decline. If, and again, it's never apples to apples, right? But let's say you have two people who have the same somehow phenotypic, or let, let, let me use a different term, they are using the exact same things to keep their mind healthy, but one has a lower risk and one has a very high risk. The person who has a high risk will still kind of decline a little bit faster cognitively than a person. Yeah. But, but then on the, on, along the same lines, the person who has a cognitively higher risk of cognitive decline, they can work harder, right? Do more. Uh, and then they can help equalize that risk for cognitive decline. What I'm hearing from you is that the, the bad news is that we might tell you that you have a higher risk for a, a cognitive decline. The good news is if you know that, you have a, a time and we have some tools for you to fight it and hopefully delay it as a, much as possible. 
And also what I heard from you that uh, in most cases is more than 50% uh, environment and uh, your behavior. So yeah, it's not only genetics. It's not like that uh, uh, if you have a, a specific risk score, let's say, uh, I don't know, bone mineral density, uh, you have a very yeah. bad uh, uh, risk or uh, a very high risk or very bad uh, potential to have a good uh, bone mineral density. Uh, that doesn't mean that you are doomed. What it means is that you can work on it and uh, hopefully uh, uh, delay the effect of that. Yeah. Yeah, it gives you, gives you an insight and an opportunity to do something with a potential unknown had you not had that insight. So in a way, uh, the a new uh, report of the 10 Hellspan score can allow our users to receive some uh, information about what should they focus on. Should they focus on lifting weight or uh, playing Sudoku? or maybe uh, consuming more uh, uh, calcium or uh, working on a other uh, thing that uh, will help them to optimize them because that's the higher risk for them. And again, we don't have uh, an, uh, 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 our time is limited. So you cannot work on everything and you cannot focus on everything. So this report in a way is guiding you what should you do uh, or what should sure. you focus on right now in order to allow you to live better, longer in the future. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that and also, like, if you look at something, we have some, uh, we have some scores that are uh, kind of indicative of some potentially invisible killers, like visceral fat, for example. It's not something that we measure, and it's not something most people measure unless maybe they're obese and they're in a clinic and they get a workup, but say, I mean, I personally scored high on visceral fat content and I'm relatively lean, I'm healthy, but that still propelled me to go and get a DEXA scan to see and confirm that my lifestyle has modified that high risk because I scored high in 94% or something like that. And I sure enough had low visceral adiposity. If, if I didn't have the lifestyle that I do, you know, given my predisposition, it's likely that I may have higher than average visceral, visceral fat. And visceral fat is the kind of metabolically unhealthy fat that hangs out around the organs and is very subject to lipolysis and free fatty acids in the blood are just no good for inflammation and insulin sensitivity and that kind of stuff. Again, stuff that creeps up on you over time. It's good to know. Great example. What's the, um, if you had to give us your outlook, the next frontier for genetics research, even though genetics research is oh. still kind of new, but what's the next new part of the new thing? <laughs> Where are we going? Uh, several, several avenues. There's a lot of work being done on diversifying the data sets. Traditionally, a lot of uh, work has been done, the most readily available data sets, and uh, that's people of European ancestries. There is a lot of consortiums now in Africa, where that will help uh, improve both uh, discovery and new variants in different populations, because the, there's a there's an issue with portability or transferability of some of the findings in populations that no, are not necessarily represented by the original studies. I would say that's a huge one. Another one is better technology and cheaper whole genome sequencing. So, like I, I think I mentioned earlier, there is a so-called miss, missing. Uh, heritability paradox where 
uh, when we discover variants for a particular trait, let's say BMI, and we discover and we try to compare the heritability based on a genome-wide association study versus the heritability that we get from traditional twin-based studies, there is a gap there. And that's because we're using non-related individuals in a genome-wide association studies. We're not detecting the super rare variants that you buy to study the nature of looking at twin studies you detect because you're not really measuring, you're not sequencing DNA, you're just looking at phenotypes and you have, you know, you have twins. But when you have whole genome sequences, you're getting all these rare variants that tend to have large effect sizes and help explain that heritability. So basically what I'm saying is we're going to have more predictive uh, scores, a lot more accurate, more, more precise scores, even and, and more scores and more precise scores and uh, more transferable scores across diverse populations. Interesting. And what is the future of... Uh... The genetic testing in uh, in Sotraco. more and better. <laughs> but I think we're we'll we'll see how we'll see how users like these new granular insights, and we have a lot in the pipeline, including some very exciting athletic score, athletic injury scores, predisposition to things like hypertrophy or rotator cuff injury, things that I think people are interested in that help again help inform their exercise habits or what they focus on or any kind of prehab they might want to do before an injury, et cetera. So that's great. And uh, for the view, uh, to, for the listeners, if you are interested in such a report, please uh, send an uh, email to our uh, support via contact us at the InstaTracker. And that will uh, uh, bubble up those reports in, uh, in the future development uh, in the company. So if you are interested, please uh, send email uh, and uh, show your voice that you are interested in them. Thanks and... for the plug, Gil. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for the plug. Not the plug. The diversity one's interesting. I was looking at my 23andMe the other day, and it said that I had very strong likelihood to have straight hair based on my European descent, whatever that was in there, and as a mixed-race person. And then you know, it said that they don't have any information from African descent about my hair follicle, whatever. But it was it was really interesting. I mean, just to hear you say that, that that's kind of the next frontier, because yeah. most people are probably some sort of combination of a lot of things. Excellent. So, uh, Bardek, uh, um, do you have any tip or any suggestion for our uh, listeners that would like to live uh, uh, better, longer? What should they do? I would say, you know, to to the extent that you can, try to measure, you know, as many of the variables that are invisible to you via blood or look at your DNA, track your physiomarkers, sleep's important. And then yeah, allow technologies like Inside Tracker to help the headache out of trying to figure out what to prioritize. Because we we do that's what we kind of I think we do best is take a large body of multidimensional data, your your personal demographics and try to come up with the highest impact most efficient interventions to help you along whatever it is your goal is towards optimizing your health span. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out 
using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast.